You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. And welcome to the Scottish Rugby Podcast, brought to you by the Scottish Rugby Blog. I am Cammy Black, and um, we are continuing with our special podcasts, uh, given that there's no uh, current rugby to talk about. And this week, we're going to look at the 1997 documentary, Living With Lions, about the Lions tour to South Africa. And joining me to pick this apart, we have, uh, from Happiness is Egg-Shaped, and um, all, all around Scottish rugby, Edinburgh, Murrayfield, he's omnipresent. That's Bruce Aitchison. He's, he's a hard man to get rid of. <laughs> Not at all, Bruce. I mean, what, I call it, 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 it's a good chat you've been doing. Might, a colleague of mine said to me that I'm a hard man to have a 10 minute conversation with. I'm still trying to figure out if that's a compliment or an insult. <laughs> Does that mean it's too, it's too, you're too short or too long? For him, probably too long. <laughs> and, and, and never, never before has my length been an issue. So it's, uh, it, I, I think it's it's a problem that people think they can just talk to me in passing, and they end up being there for a long time. Oh well, that's good. That's good for podcasts. I'll say that. Uh, um, well, I hope so. I hope it's good for this one. Aye. Um, well, we while we've got you here, Bruce, is there anything you've you, you've got a lot of things kind of coming up at the minute is there anything you want to promote you've got the quizzes and evenings with players with ember rugby is there anything that people should watch out for uh, this saturday night it's an evening with edinburgh rugby and we've got andy irvin and the chainsaw and we've got cockers and tim visser and doug struth the ceo is going to be there so i'm looking forward to that i had a bit of a nightmare last friday with the genius quiz for doddy on youtube just as i got to the final round my daughter's Chromebook decided to give up, so the last round was a bit of a flap and changing the link and all sorts. So that was that, that was a bit of a disaster. But um, no, the, this this spell has given me opportunities because, as I say, people are looking around for things, and if they need somebody to fill in some time, then uh, give Bruce a call. So I've really enjoyed some of it and being in touch with some new people and getting to catch up and, and do this. When you sent me the message about this one, I just jumped to it because this is such an amazing an amazing tour, an amazing documentary, people that are, are still heroes of mine. And I've met a few of them, and, and I'm just still absolutely in awe that they were part of this tour. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing, can I, I've got a question for Richard Cockrell because we've we've had him. We have a section on our podcast called "Where's Dougie Donnelly," where we ask people to send in players and coaches and pundits that they spotted out and about. And Richard Cockrell has been spotted in both Tesco and Sainsbury's. Yeah, and yeah, I want to know which uh, I want to know which he prefers. I, I reckon there's, there's probably something that he has a little penchant for in in each of them because he's a man of of rich tastes. Now I'm actually halfway through his autobiography as we speak, and uh, I've, I got it on Amazon for about three ninety nine, and I told him that I'd got it. And he was not impressed. I don't think he enjoys being reminded of the autobiography. And I have to admit, after the third chapter, I was quite tired because it's so short and sharp and angry that I, I had to go for a lie down. Um, and he, he does not hold back in it. It is one of the most aggressive books I've ever read in my life. I wonder I wonder. So, if it's uh, like Gregor Townsend's. Talk of the Tinny. Talk of the Tinny, which, well, I was going to say, well, we, we reviewed that on our book club the other week and we were saying, I don't, whether it's yeah. the same thing, whereas I don't think Tinny would write that now in the same way that he did. It was kind of, his was a bit of a yeah. no-hole-bars thing and you wonder whether I or not... Listened, I listened to Dave Allred, the the kicking coach and, and coaching guru that worked a lot with Johnny Wilkinson. He was talking about this kind of idea, though, that not many of us would do the same thing again, but at that time, in that situation we found ourselves in, that was how we went about it. Mm. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit like guys like David Soul and Scott Hastings and Roy Laidlaw and John Rutherford who wrote autobiographies, but imagine if they wrote them now, how, how different they would be and, and the stories they would have to tell. I think you just take the opportunity when it comes along and you, you can only go with where you are at that point but I mean there's absolutely no way Cockers would write the same way as he wrote then well, there's I think a future, that is absolutely certain there is a future candidate for the lockdown book club on this podcast Cockers autobiography that sounds like a good a good idea um, we might get on to things that people wouldn't do now uh, that they did in the past in a moment um, because um, also joining me uh, the... <laughs> uh, also joining us this evening we have our one and only John Anderson Hi, Kami. How are you all doing, guys? Very well, John. Um, John, you and I, we, we've we've kind of been planning this for a while, and we, we asked Bruce along because I know Bruce, Bruce is a big fan of the documentary and yeah. and the Lions. Um, I thought we, it was Alan McDonald, who's a, a long-time listener to the podcast, that suggested we look at this documentary. And um, one of the first things Alan said to me was, some of it's going to be problematic. <laughs> um, what I was actually surprised at is it, it wasn't as problematic as, it, as I thought it might be going into it. There's... I think mainly because the rugby stuff isn't problematic, but the and even some of the off the pitch stuff is okay. But there are there is a lot, you know, there is a lot of stuff you look at and you think I don't think one I don't think it would happen now, but I don't think the guys that were doing that now would it's they would look back and wince. Yes, I, th- I think that's a fair summary of things. Um, I, I was I was much like yourself. I I had kind of went into it with sort of peeking through my hands thinking oh no you know late late 90s um lad kind of lad culture on tour oh this could be this could be grim but there was certain bits of it that were as expected and as you rightly say the vast majority of it was um yeah has aged okay 
I'm going to say okay because I have a f- I have a few a few uh, maybe controversial things to put in later on, but some of it's aged okay. Yeah, Bruce, what did you feel watch? Was this had you watched this back recently then, or is this the first time you have watched it in a while? Uh, I've. It's one of those things that uh, if and when Nikki leaves the house and the girls <laughs> are retained somewhere else, it's actually one of those things that I will put on that, or it's either that or Pitch Perfect. Uh, so I've watched the Pitch Perfect movies one, two, and three quite a few times over lockdown. So I gave <laughs> Living with the Lions another airing, uh, and there are there are bits of it that even at the time I think were were probably questionable. But as you say, it was made in that moment, and the media weren't quite all over it. Alistair Campbell wasn't a tourist, <laughs> uh, you know the. The the backroom team were you know were small and had seen it all before and you know been part of it before with Geach and, and Jim Telfer having played and uh, been online so you know there was it, it was accepted I suppose is the way it goes I, I'm still not convinced that some of what went here would have been very popular at the time when the the wives or girlfriends or even some <laughs> teammates saw it but. It's it's one of those things that I don't think she'd ever just be oh but they were on tour. It's a bit like yeah he's a good guy apart from when he's drunk. Well, he's probably not that great a guy, is he? Yeah. Uh, so there's there are bits in it that even at the time I think we probably raised our eyebrows up. But there's there's so much good in it, and there is it it was one of those two that even now this this far beyond it. It's still a tour most of us wish we'd been part of because it was professional in that they were getting paid to be there. They weren't just getting expenses, but they were very good rugby players and they were still, you know, Jason Leonard still wanted to fill his face with, with birthday cake, didn't he? And Dave McLean could stick it wherever Dave McLean wanted to stick it. You know, all those little moments. And those are the things that are absolutely true. And they're still true now. It's just we're not allowed to see them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I think that's that's it. It is kind of a an all access thing, and the interesting choice about, and I always enjoy documentaries like this is they just complete lack of voiceover at all. So you kind of just left with these discussions and this kind of it's you know it's obviously told in chronological fashion as they go through the tour. You get tiny snippets of the game, but it's mostly focused on the bench and on McGeekin and Telfer, which is which is the main reason we chose this to look at. One is it's the last probably the last time that. Scottish players featured heavily in the test series, although there weren't actually uh, many chosen. I think it was nine players went from Scotland in the end, but they were there throughout. You know, the, there are players there in the test team that are starting, and it's it's McGeekin and Telfer, you know, and it's it's probably and then also it's it's the turn of professionalism and like you said, Bruce, the, the what surprised me I think is that they are acting in a profession. Everything about this is professional. And this, I think some of the stuff that, that off the pitch stuff is stuff that probably still goes on. We just don't get to see it. And but the the planet's absolutely aligned for this tour because the the players had become professional, but then you add in the rugby league converts mm. who had been professional, you know, and and that up the level of you know gym work. I've I've met John Bentley quite a few times, and and I've heard his his after dinner speech, and um, we actually. 
when I was head coach of Watsonians, I had met Ben Toss and we were going on a pre-season tour and we went to, we played Darlington Mountain Park on the Friday night with the second 15. So that tells you how far Darlington Mountain Park have come in that time. And then we went down to Leeds. We stayed in Leeds Met Halls on the Friday night and then on the Saturday morning, I'd arranged for Ben Toss to give us a tour around the Leeds Rhinos, Leeds Carnegie um, training facility. So we were in, Bentos gives us a tour round and he said, this is the gym. And I'll never forget, some of the boys nearly fell over because he said, I never lifted weights. And he stood at the front and he told some stories and he spoke about rugby and then he said, anybody got any questions? And the boys asked him questions and I was stood at the back of the room and that was it all over. The boys started to file out of the room and there was guys who were you know I was a young head coach I was 28 at the time um, I think I'd just turned 29 so there was guys walking out who knew this tour who'd watched the DVD and they're going Bruce that was John Bentley thanks so much that was John Bentley that was John Bentley now Stuart McAnally was on that tour as an 18 year old fresh out of school so I think was, was he five at the time of Living with the Lions a 97 tour and as they're walking out I said to them Rambo, have you got any idea who that is? He said, I've not got an effing clue. <laughs> <laughs> so he had guys looking at this thinking, that is John Bentley, that's Bentos, that's Bentos. And Stuart McAnally for about an hour and a half had no idea who this guy was that was speaking to. <laughs> <laughs> Just speaking to a very <laughs> angry man from Leeds. <laughs> yeah, talking about how it's aged. I mean, Stuart McAntally is now Scotland International, has been captain, potentially. Lions tourist and he didn't know you know he was five years old at the time that we are looking back and reminiscing on so it's but he will now know and there are people who have learned about Bentos and who have watched this you know as a as a coach taking Murrayfield Wanderers on trips to Inverness to play Highland or you know all over the place I would bring Living with the Lions and we would put it on and the boys loved it you know they were absolutely glued to it. it's. I know it. I know it. Maybe it hasn't aged well, but it's travelled well. Yeah, and I think that's true. I think I, there is looking at it. There is so much in that tour that I mean, I'm surprised that that hasn't been taken forward onto to, to tours following that. It's almost a blueprint for how you tour, and it's a blueprint for what the lines should be about. And you can almost see that the lines, the, the 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 squads that have then departed from the blueprint, and we'll talk about this later on, have come unstuck. And it's only when they've kind of gone back to this, you know, all for one, one for all ethos and not splitting the touring team into two that there is an element, a modicum of success within what they do. So it is, it, it's interesting. I mean, the, the the big thing that struck for me is when when it's when it opens, you've got Ian McGeehan giving the speech. And it's he's almost painting this big picture, saying everything they do is about South Africa. Like every little thing they're going to do in the preparation and when they're on tour is all about South Africa. And that's really interesting to set that out from the outset because it's not, again, like you said, Bruce, it's it's the the start of professionalism. But to have someone almost almost kind of talking in those professional terms so early in professionalism is really interesting. We were also just out of, you know, South Africa had only just arrived back. So they were, there was this romantic, and they were World Cup winners and, and Nelson Mandela. And, you know, they were, if 97 Tour had been to Australia or New Zealand, I'm not sure we would be talking about it in the same way. It was because it was South Africa. And even the choice of captain, you know, Martin Johnson, I think, 
the reason he was chosen as captain was because he was probably the only player that you could point at and say he's going to start in the test team. It, I mean, it must have, there, there was so many leaders in that squad. Keith Wood, Lawrence Delalio, you know, Gregor to a certain extent, Jeremy Guskett had been there before. You know, there was a whole lot of people who had been and done and seen things. And Martin Johnson got the nod to be Lions captain. But how would you have picked a test team that before they left these shores? It, very, very difficult. And not knowing how the league boys were going to integrate and the rising of people like, you know, Matt Dawson benefited from Rob Howley's injury, Ben Toss becoming the star of the show and, but didn't get to start in the first test. So McGeekin is a smart, smart rugby man who knows the Lions but knows South Africa. It's impossible to go with here's what our team's going to be because there is so much that has to happen before you get to that first test. I mean, it still breaks my heart when when I see Doddy's reaction and, and that um, that thug that, that damaged Doddy and put him out. And, and coming back to how small the world is and the rugby world is, when I was head coach of Watsonians, I got sent by an agent, the CV of he who shall not be named, who is the one who destroyed me. Can you imagine if I had brought into Scottish rugby the man who had ruined the Doddy Year's Lions tour? <laughs> I don't think we'd have made it past the border. I wouldn't have been hung, drawn and quartered. <laughs> <laughs> um, John, I mean, the interesting thing about this, John, I think when I was thinking about this today is the one thing this documentary doesn't deal with is what's going on in South Africa at this time. And it's, it's, almost, it's quite surprising that it doesn't. And it's surprising, I think, as well, that it's never mentioned by anybody, any of the touring team either, that this is post-apartheid South Africa. And they've won the World Cup, you know, and and it's, you know, Nelson Mandela uses it as a way to unite the country. But then you've got, I think I read today, was it Transvaal and Orange State didn't field a black player at all in 1997. So you've still got all these undertones in this country, in the country. But it's a, like Bruce said, it's a monumental tour. This is the first time they've toured South Africa since 1980. And when they tour in 1980, they do it without government backing. In fact, you know, the government opposes them touring in, in South right, Africa yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah. But it's just not brought up at all. Did that seem strange to you? Yeah, very much. So, um, you, I was, I was kind of always waiting for the mention of it, and I, it was actually, it was, it was probably a step further than that in that they give very little time over to. There's, there's, there's very, very in the sort of more, more modern documentaries um, about Lionsters, There's a lot more chat about the opposition, about who they're up against. There's very little time given over to. South Africa at all, um, other than John uh, Jim Tell for shouting about them. Uh, so, um, which is fairly standard. But no, it is. It's almost like it was a deliberate move to say, right, okay, we're we're going to we're going to record all this, but we are going to steer right away from that. And I think there's maybe a, an element of that. Um, the kind of euphoria from the '95 World Cup and obviously the, the Rainbow Nation and Nelson Mandela and all that all that stuff. As you say, those those ra- uh, the, the racial issues were still are, are still ongoing to this day. But there was maybe a sort of um, a, a kind of glossing over it because of the '95 World Cup. Yeah, um, the the 
the interesting thing then, Bruce, for me was when when this opens, it's it's the um, documentary open. It's it's them doing the prep training in Weybridge, and it's just how and and this this goes right through the documentary how integrated Telfer, McGeekin, and Fran Cotton are with the players. You know, they're doing the team building activities with them. They're mucking in. They're not leading them. They're just taking part, and that must. Have been that must have been a conscious decision to do that to almost kind of go in as equals. So we're not here to tell you what to do. We're here to to guide you and to to help you. But that's almost the theme of it is that we're not we're not going to stand at the front and dictate to you what you what you have to do. Again, coming back to what I said before, the stars absolutely aligned for this tour to have McGeekin and Telfer, who at the time you know their stock was still very very high and they had the respect of the players from outside of Scotland. So although they were integrated, I think you're absolutely right, and they, it was a bit of a level, but under no circumstances would anybody have thought Jim Telfer was one of, the, one of them. Do you know what I mean? It was, they, they knew where the line was with Jim. Um, and Geach has just got that amazing calmness but when he speaks he speaks so so intelligently and with purpose that they were able to see now he switched back in to Ian McGeekin head coach and to do a tour like that you know there will never be a tour with so few involved you know for for Jim to do all the forwards work you know that's that's never going to happen again um, so the because they had such a unity together and had previous and had experience of being lions, I just think they they got the tone absolutely right. You know, I think whenever we get a chance, you, you know, you're getting to run a podcast. You're running a podcast the way you want to run it from the experiences you've had and the people you've met and the other things you've listened to. I think at that point, Geach and, and Jim were this, we're going to do this taking in everything we've learned, everything we've done and seen before, and we're going to make this the best it could possibly be. And the players just, although they mocked and they, you know, they had a bit of ribbon, that's also one of those signs of respect, isn't it? To to have people taking the mickey out of you and doing your, doing your accent is actually a sign of respect. <laughs> yeah, there was, was it Rob, Rob Wainwright says at one point, Jim's, Jim's going to die on the training pitch. Uh, and... and Jim, Rob Wainwright, who I'm sure you've met, I mean, Rob is barking mad, absolutely bonkers, but hilarious. And when he, he does some of the accents and he does a bit of Andrew Cotter commentary over some of the sessions when he's sitting at the sideline, they're just absolutely gold. Uh, they had so many characters who had been and done other things. They weren't, no one there had only ever been a professional rugby player you know they they all came from different areas and they'd had jobs and they'd done other things you know they had pilots and the underwood tony underwood i think was in the raf wasn't he and you know they had butchers and bakers and candlestick makers they you know they were they were a collection of boys who i think were actually pinching themselves who couldn't believe they were getting to do it and then you get the guys coming back from league Scotty Gibbs getting to be a lion again, and you've got Alan Tate, who, you know, was probably thinking, "I have timed this absolutely beautifully to be part of this because four years later he wasn't going to get to be a lion." You know, die young, getting to be. A lion. I, I just think that 
it was just so beautifully poised and they got such a great mixture of the four nations because you're right, this was probably the last one where Scotland had not just good players but big characters and players who could rightfully contest for a test spot. They weren't just filling a gap in the back of the dirt tracker team. They were actually there to stake a claim for the test. Yeah, I think that come back to the Jim Telfer thing, John, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this. We we obviously did, uh, I think it's me and uh, Ian did the, the lockdown book club looking at Gregor Townsend's autobiography. And, and one thing he says in there is, because he was at Northampton at the time, and he said all the, all the forwards from Northampton that were going on the lines to us said, we're not going to put up with Jim Telfer's crap. We're not prepared. <laughs> we are not prepared. We're not going in there. He's not going to treat us the way he treats the Scottish players. And Jim Telfer, I think the... Um, Telfer himself, I think, had been—he was director of rugby at Scotland at the time, so he hadn't really been coaching. He, I think, there's a—I think it might be living. I want to say it's living with the Lions, which is—it's a bit like the thistle behind the thistle book, where they they they, they interview guys from from the different tours. And, and Telfer knows this, and he's, there's an interview with him where he says, "I knew that they weren't going to want to agree to be treated like this." So what he did was he gets them to agree to a set of behaviours, and you see. You don't see Telford doing that with them, but you see the players at the start almost coming yeah. up with their own contract of this is our standards at the very outset and this is what we're going to do. And Telford said that was very deliberate because he wanted them, to, he almost got them to give him permission to beast them. It was a bit like being a, <laughs> oh, say a kind of a, a backstreet madam. He just didn't give them a safety word. That's the problem because they didn't know how to turn it off. And Keith Wood says that if they'd been out there a week later, they would have absolutely killed him. Um, but it's it that, that kind of idea of I don't want to say tricking them because I don't think that's the right thing. But the the idea, John, of of getting the players to set the standards early on and think about what they're going to do is again, it's it's not something you would necessarily expect them to be doing at that stage of professionalism. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair, and I think you know to 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 your point about tricking them. You you're a father of a young child, Cameron. <laughs> you you understand that sometimes it's 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 about um providing your your people the opportunity to decide what's best for them. But it just so happens that aligns to what you want to do. Um yeah, um the the I, yeah, the Telfer thing is really interesting because you do see you see a lot of them, and you can tell there is a tension. There is a real tension between him and the players, and he's he's, he's classic Telfer, and obviously this he's he's very aggressive, very very boisterous. Um, having watched it back, I, I was I, I, we've talked about this in the past as well. The the level of um, let's say positive reinforcement is perhaps missing, but. He certainly he's created an environment of of pure fear, and it it reminded me a lot of like what you hear about guys like Alex Ferguson when he was at Manchester United. That that tyranny that was created, and the guys I don't they, I don't know if they respected him, but they feared him. Um, and that that I think that's what they needed at that point, and I think that's probably the best you could hope for at that stage of professionalism. And it certainly got the result they wanted, but um, I think. With hindsight and perhaps what we know more about, you know, mental health of players, um, you know, winning environments and things like that, we could probably look back at it and think, was there a better way of doing it, perhaps? 
I don't. That was the interesting thing, Bruce. I'm interested in your take on this. There was a lot. I mean, I almost kind of came away thinking the opposite to that. That that there was a lot of let it out, lads. There was a lot of almost kind of like use your emotions and and particularly from Geech because he's you know he's the beating heart of the Lions team. He really uses emotions as a as a as a motivator. He's he, he he's almost giving them permission to to kind of let it out and to feel the emotions that otherwise they might be bottling up, you know, to, to acknowledge the people they're there to play for. And that's a really interesting kind of technique, I guess, that he's almost giving them permission to be emotional. I think yeah, that started, though, at Weybridge. That started with them having to be a role. You know, there was a lot of what are the behaviours, how is that going to take play out? And it was, it was giving them the parameters for them to make sure that not, not necessarily they behaved themselves, but they knew what the expectations were. And, you know, Geach and, and Jim Telfer wouldn't coach now the way they coached in 97, but it was it was the right way at that time. Um, you know, Gregor Townsend played the way he played because he was given that role. I mean, nobody on the planet thought Neil Jenkins was a fullback. <laughs> but... Neil, Neil Jenkins was playing the part that Geach and, and Jim had written for him and the rest of the team were there to play their part. I think it was it was absolutely beautifully orchestrated. But the other thing about the emotion, you know, we would all love to give a speech like Jim Telfer or Ian McGeekin. You know, I, I have stolen the McGeekin bit about, I, I used to say to players, and, and probably will again in the future, the longer the game goes, the bigger the jersey gets and the more it takes to fill it, which is paraphrasing Geechee's bit. Uh, you know, nobody nobody can ever again make a, a speech about Everest because that's Jim Telfer's. Jim Telfer has claimed Everest for his own <laughs> and will, will go down in history. I mean, forget Edmund Hillary. E- Everest belongs to Jim Telfer. So... They used emotion because I think you had to use emotion in South Africa. Otherwise, they were going to use it against you and run right over the top of you. Look at what happened to the All Blacks in the final two years earlier. Mm. I mean, that that was, you know, it was a nation. It was the Rainbow Nation. It was Nelson Mandela. It was all those things. I mean, even Sean Fitzpatrick, when we came out and saw Nelson Mandela wearing the number six Springbok jersey, you know, for somebody who had absolute unstinting belief in himself and his team and the jersey that he wore, there was a little flutter there of, oh, actually, this might not be our day. So to go to South Africa, uh, Geechee's one about, you know, when it's wounded, it'll come out flailing and it doesn't think, let's go for the jugular. I mean, that's that's some pretty, pretty grim... Uh, metaphors in there to you know let's go for the jugular let's kill the springbok that's a that's pretty tough going but you walked out of that hotel room ready to go i mean i'm sitting on the couch watching it thinking right i need to go and beat something up here (laughs) it's 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 absolutely amazing and that's the bit still now as a 41 year old never was I still would love to have made that 97 Lions tour. And I think all of those boys are still pinching themselves that they got to be there. Yeah. I think the other thing that's that kind of, it, it didn't surprise me this time around because I'd seen clips of it before, before. I've never watched this. The first time I've sat and watched it all the way through, I'll admit. And I was, I think I'd be oh, 97. So I was about 16 at the time of the Lions tour. So I watched, I watched bits of it at the time 
but I wasn't sat there religiously watching. I don't think I caught the documentary when it came out. But the like how how calmly those speeches are, are delivered. Like you said, they're talking about this brutality. I mean, you know, Telfer and, and McGeehan talking about, like you said, going for the jugular and it being their Everest and, and filling the shirt. And, you know, but it's delivered, John, with such calmness that it's it, it kind of doesn't really sit with the words that they're saying. Uh, no, it's a bit unnerving, actually. It's, it's um, the, the, the degree of kind of... Um, it's, it's that idea they, they always say that you um, to make yourself seem more scary and ominous it's not about shouting and swearing it's the quiet uh, deliberate uh, choice of words that can often be the most intimidating um, and that that certainly comes across I think I think the point you made about Ian McGeekin is very important I think he for me came out of the 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 tour looking he he for me was the the probably the the first modern style professional coach and that you could see him as as you guys right say you know he's using the emotion he's using uh he's using the players really well but he's he's managing them in uh what we would recognize as, as as a modern style and and it was very interesting to see um and it was a real obviously a contrast between him and Telfer as well um but but yeah it's um they, they've really they have they have kind of taken the Taking a biscuit on speeches, they they kind of you know they kind of make your 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 job in the changing room that bit harder. If you're trying to, gee, I was always really bad at trying to like give speeches before games. Um, I'll openly admit that, but um, yeah, guys like that made it all the more harder for you, really. Yeah, I want to spend a bit of time on the speeches in a minute. I mean, the one thing just before we leave the the Weybridge thing and the and the behaviours, and it's something Rob Wainwright says. And obviously, it's been part of their group discussion. This idea that the onus is on the player who isn't selected to congratulate the player that's been picked, and it and it's just kind of it's this throwaway thing at the start. But then when Bentos is on the bench, he talks about that. So they're almost they're dealing with it up front with everyone, and they're building this collective unity right from the start. And I don't think. Actually, except for 2009, because I went away after thinking about this and, and, and looked at what McGeekin did in 2009. I think apart from 2009, which again is a McGeekin tour, I don't think any Lions tour has has replicated that, Bruce. I think that the, you know, even the the Gatland tours so far, which have been successful, you know, you can't argue that they have been successful tours in terms of results. But in terms of the player experience, in terms of, you know, you've got Ryan Grant saying that Steve Borthwick wouldn't throw him on in the second test, even when Makabunapola was broken, because he didn't trust him. You've got, you know, I think Sam Walburton talking about the New Zealand tour and how he knew there were splits in the camp and Warren Gatlin wasn't necessarily addressing it. What happened with the Geography 6 coming in? You know, these guys not being fully integrated and accepted in the squad. The, yeah, the results, the results are there, but... You, I don't think we've seen that kind of unity from Alliance squad since. And and that's where you get that's where it becomes professional. You know, it's there's no pictures on the league table, there's no all that kind of stuff will be judged on results. Uh, you know, I I really felt for Brian O'Driscoll because I thought he deserved to play in the third test in Australia. Um now maybe I'm too sentimental and they picked Jonathan Davis and they won and they won well and they won the series and all those kind of things. But I saw, I actually watched one of those 15-minute things on Sky Sports about that tour. In fact, I think it was Jamie Roberts was 
it was his two reflections or something. And Jonathan Davis said that they found out when Warren Gatlin read it for that paper. You know, to announce the team raw like that, you know, that's back to the olden days of finding out when it was on the radio or, you know, I got a phone call from my dad who was listening to the news and found out I was in the squad, that kind of idea. So that you're right, it, it does take away that that personal touch that, you know, Bento's sitting up all night in the in the lobby of the the hotel waiting for the letter to be delivered by the you know, the, the girl who's detailed to go around and slip them under the door. I mean, what what a way to do it, but that must have been one of the things that was agreed. This is how we're going to find out the team. And it's uh, having having picked a squad for a cup final before, um, that Wednesday night was the hardest night I think I've had as a rugby coach because I was phoning players to tell them they weren't going to be in the 22 to play at Murrayfield. And that was, that was tough. Um, and there's... I'm always amazed by football because footballers don't tend to find out the team until an hour and a half before kickoff when they arrive at the stadium in the changing room. But as as rugby people, you spend so much time with organising for the the game. You know your your captains run. You can't do a captains run if you don't know what the team is. So players are given quite a lot of time to get things straight in their head and in their heart as a rugby player to prepare for a performance. But there's also the preparing for the announcement. I think that's as big as an emotional roller coaster as running out for your national anthem. So the the Geach personal touches, and I, I think most of those players probably knew if they were in with a shout very early on because they were not very early on the tour, but very early on in the time of selection. I think most boys would have a clue if they were involved or not. And it, it was just, their selections were absolute masterstrokes. You know, the, the front row is a classic example. No one would have picked the props to play in the first test before they left these shores. But it served the purpose for the way Jim and Geach decided they were going to play and how they trained and prepared was all geared towards we're going to play Wally and, and Tom Smith. Absolutely amazing. Just fantastic. And those boys were given that chance, but that was probably quite a quite an ordeal for Jason Leonard to deal with. Uh, so they they had to manage through that. Yeah, I mean, there's that speech, isn't there? I think it's it 2009 where McGeekin does a speech about Jason Leonard being the ultimate lion, doesn't he? Because of because of his response to it, because he fully buys into uh, John that this idea that you if you don't get selected, you're there to help prepare the man who is representing your shirt so the shirt belongs to everybody that's vying for that position and you're there to support the person that has been selected because they're representing you and that that's a that's not an idea i don't think we've seen replicated in 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 other lines to us no no and it's it's a it's a tough sell it's a tough sell you know you've got guys guys who are in the position they're in because they are competitive they are ruthless and they believe they're the best in that position. Uh, and it is, it's a really tough ask. And, um, you know, you see the, the kind of, you see uh, Bentos and the way he's kind of stressing about it and he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed because I'm not starting, but at least I'm on the bench. And you, you do, you feel, you feel a bit emotional for the guys, but 
there there is there is something about that buy-in to you know these again it all come kind of comes back to professionalism that idea of you're not starting you're not in the team but you're still a professional rugby player and you have a job to do now we've we've all got jobs our managers all ask us to do different things on different days it might not necessarily be what we are trained to do or employed to do but if it's for the good of the team you tend to do it and it's the same the same is true here and um it, it probably for me is kind of that first indication of where the the worlds of um business management and 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 sport kind of start to come together in rugby yeah i, th- I think jason leonard though a bit like geech and jim telfer they had that beautiful striding between the amateur game and the professional game. So many, many of those values came through. I mean, was Jason Leonard pinching himself because he was getting to be a lion again? You know, he'd he'd been and done and seen so many things and, and then went on to do even more. Jason Leonard's always struck me as somebody who is massively pleased to be in the place that he's in. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, and, and being on tour as a lion, able to play either side of the scrum, having had a bit of experience, decent, big character, well-respected by all four nations. I, I just think he he was absolutely tailor-made to be a lion in the same way he was probably tailor-made to be a barbarian. He's the kind of guy you want on tour. Uh, and, and it's no wonder he's been made manager because he's the kind of guy that will instill those values that were just came so shining through in 97 and probably made people want to be lions like Sam Warburton folding up his number seven shirt and putting it in the attic because the next one he wanted, he wanted it to be his. You know, those those kind of stories are because the lions is something people want to be. And remember, it was, it was dwindling. It, it wasn't as exciting as we now probably find it, but 97 really helped jump that whole thing forward again. And it being televised, like you're saying, Cammy, about being 16, I was very lucky to have Sky TV, and I was I had just finished my sixth year at school. So my mates got the bus from Gala to Stow, and they didn't do that very often because I had Sky. <laughs> the, the 95 bus from Gala to Stow was busy, and my mates came up and watched every single game, the, the midweek games, because it was, uh, you know, it was summertime. Yeah, it was during what was study leave and into the summer holidays, and they watched every single game in my living room. And we we then went on our lads' holiday, and we pretended we we told people that we were the lions uh, who were having <laughs> a holiday. Uh, so I, I was I was Gregor Townsend, and uh, our our mate who looked just like him was Neil Jenkins, and we had Scotty and we had Scotty Gibbs and we just lied through our teeth that we were the Lions having a jolly. Yeah, you see, I think I was unlucky, Bruce, because I was I was doing my GCSEs at the time. So so the midweek games were ruled out for me because it, because I was in Berwick, so it was English school, so the English school holidays. So May and June are an, an absolute nightmare <laughs> for, yeah, no, for watching I, midweek games. Perfectly timed. Oh. perfectly timed for us. 
you pay are, are showing your age a lot here, and you're also showing your your privileged upbringing with your Sky Sports. Honestly, yeah. wouldn't get wouldn't get that in the in the Isle of Butte. Honestly, bad times. There's also a whole of the people going. You're only that old. <laughs> I've taken pelters for that recently. I think we should. All, it's worth remembering that this is, of course, the year that Darcy Graham's dad entered the Gladiators. See, this is the only reason I wanted to be on this. This is '97 all over again for me. All the all all the prep work I've done. I actually thought the montage of the guys in the gym when you when you first so might be a good segue into this, but the the gym gym scene. It was almost like you could have taken the players and just replaced them with gladiators, and you wouldn't have noticed. It no. was uh, there was the dodgy music in the background. I'm sure Telfer was there shouting abuse at them. It was yeah, it was an episode of gladiators. There was a right, re- my highlight, the gym scene, because we'll, we'll steer clear of the the inappropriate one. Is Scotty Gibbs dancing? How good is Scotty Gibbs at dancing? What a mover! <laughs> Beautiful, die, isn't it? How young does Die Young look? He looks about 12. Yeah, he's a, he's a 12-year-old face in the body of a man. <laughs> it shows what being a head coach does to you. Like, <laughs> it's really not good for you. Because <laughs> he, he should still look 12. Like, with that, with, you know, with that face, he should still look about 12. He should still be getting ID'd for his pints. But because he became a head coach, he looks about 107. The, the really interesting thing for me in that bit is Bentos calling out the Welsh lads for the clique. Ah, and yeah, I think yeah. he genuinely does, and he and he means it. You know, he pulls them up and says, "You, you know, we're supposed to not have cliques, but here are all the Welsh lads together." And he calls them all out on it, and they just look so awkward, and they just <laughs> don't know what to say. They clearly know they've been caught out on this, and it's just that's and I, and I, and I, as much as he kind of comes across as a joker, I think he's deadly serious with them. Bruce, did you did did you get that impression? Yeah, but that's one of those things. If you can say it in jest, but actually underneath. There's a there's a meaning in there, uh, and I think does Scotty Gibbs not say it's because we lift more than everybody else? Yeah. <laughs> so they, they he does he does try and get out of it, but no, I think underlying there there is a little dig to say, listen lads, you you need to pay attention to this. But having having told that story about Bentos never lifting a weight before in a gym, I think that scene probably sums it up. He was too busy <laughs> arsing. <laughs> he's too bu- too busy inappropriately filming women um, the um yeah i mean it, it's it's um my favorite speech in all of this isn't the everest speech interestingly my favorite speech is the honest player speech i think that's a better speech because i really like that idea that the, and, and it's again i think it comes back to what makes a good tourist you know, but they decided the honest player. It, you know, there's two types of players: the honest player and there's the rest. And the honest player doesn't complain about things like whether his rooms, his showers, cold, and the food, and things like that. I, I I love it when he says about the the Brits go on holiday and the first thing yeah. is an English pub. The next thing they look for is a pint of Guinness, and the next thing they look for the only thing they're willing to accept is the sunshine. And can you imagine going on holiday with Jim Telfer? <laughs> I mean, and I love this. I love what he tells the story about how his mum gave him such a row when he got home because there was so many swear words in his speeches. <laughs> I just think that absolutely because Jim, Jim Telfer, my mum is actually a godmother to Jim's kids, 
and uh, my mum was saying that they were, many many years ago they were at a wedding and Jim had been playing in a game and he'd arrived late to the reception afterwards and my mum had said to him you've been to the hospital haven't you and he said don't tell Francis because he was too scared to tell his wife (laughs) (laughs) he's scared of people I absolutely love that story that he's scared of both his mum and his wife (laughs) so he is he is human after all he laughs he laughs in this and he's smiling in it a lot but he, he must have just felt like it, it was his utopia. I mean, he was in South Africa being written off with a forward pack to die for yeah. with, his, with his mate, with Geach. You know, the, the two of them had done such amazing things. This was, this was his Everest. To, I mean, he's, he's won, a, won with the Lions. He's won a series in South Africa. I mean, it, it was absolutely, I mean, that probably topped him being head teacher at Hoyk High School. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just what, what an absolute dream. And those, those players, for all they might have resented or were apprehensive about working with them, he found a way. And that's the, you know, although he wouldn't coach the way he coached then, he wouldn't be able to do that now. He found a way, and that's the sign of an amazing coach, being able to adapt to your surroundings, your playing staff, your situation you find yourself in, and still finding a way. And the two of them just did it so brilliantly. And when you watch them doing their analysis in their hotel room of you know training, and then watching the games back, and when they, when they play a game and something happens and the camera cuts to to Geach and Creamy talking about how things happened and that's what was supposed to happen. That's just, they're in their element. That is them in their, you know, in their habitat, just performing to their absolute best. I think my absolute highlight of Jim Telfer and the whole thing, well, there's two highlights. One is the fact that at the end of the third test, everyone's elated and they cut to Jim Telfer looking absolutely furious that they've lost. But the, yeah. other, the other highlight is um, during a scrummaging session where he's absolutely beasting them. And he says, there's only 300 on it. An effing bunch of cats could move that. That's right. <laughs> absolutely love that. Uh, and then he I makes them do sprints. I, I like when they flare up at the scrums and he tells them to calm down, but he only wants them to calm down because the press are there. <laughs> Can you imagine if the press were there? I think he would. I think he would have joined in. <laughs> there was a really interesting thing. Uh, it was earlier this week, which was kind of uh, fortuitous for us because we could pick up on it. But Lawrence Delalio was interviewed by Jim Hamilton about this tour and about this. They were talking about the speeches, and Bruce is probably one for you, really. The the, the fact that. Delalio says he thinks that, that Telfer really draws on his experiences as a teacher using using pauses to to kind of in between what he says to kind of like let it sink in. The, but the other bit about Jim before he gives the Everest speech when he's in the team room, you know, and the team room is not the team room that you would see now with table tennis and pool tables and you know whiteboards up. He's rearranging the chairs to get them into the circle but he's whispering what he's going to say to them mm. that you know it, it seems like it's off the cuff and you would love to think that so many of those speeches that are given are off the cuff but 
he'd practiced, he'd rehearsed. I've got no doubt that was swimming through his head as he shut his eyes and put his head on the pillow the night before and when he woke up and was chewing on raw meat for his breakfast in the morning. There's absolutely no way he's not gone through and carefully selected words. I just, I think that's the, the bit that is missing from the documentary, you know, is the fly on the wall of Jim Telfer's hotel room. Can you imagine how much he... I don't think he switches off. I, I, th I think he was on all the time because his desire to beat the Springboks in their own backyard was so huge. And when he delivered his speeches, they had been swimming around in that head of his for a while. And then because he can deliver them the way he delivers them with such passion and intimidation and, you know, that sinister, quiet whisper, there's... There's nothing better as a teacher to be able to deliver a message to a room full of people in a whisper because you know you've absolutely got them in the palm of your hand. And it's it's one of the best ways to convey any kind of message is, is to do it so quietly. Yeah, and I think the other thing, John, I don't know if you picked up on this, is they've clearly agreed at some point in advance between McGeekin and, and Fran Cotton and, and Jim Telfer these phrases that keep coming up again and again, and one of them is teams within teams. And they all mention it in their speeches again and again and again. And it's just that, that repetition to kind of reinforce the messages that they're trying to get across. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, it's it's one of those things that you see. Again, it's something that's probably come forward into the kind of modern the modern management techniques. Um, but yeah, it's very much the case. They're, they're clearly identifying that there's um, some key behaviours that they want to ah. instill. They, uh, they want to kind of create those those small teams, um, and again, it's that idea of you know they're they're talking they talk a lot about the, the personal responsibility, and that's one thing that jumped out at me. You know, all the speeches they talk about looking 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 at the guys around you, and um, you know which one of them are you going to let down? None of them, and all that sort of stuff. Um, obviously, missing out the colourful language around it to uh, to emphasise the point, but. That that idea of creating those smaller teams allows that um, element of responsibility and uh, decision making and kind of um, leadership to to develop naturally, uh, and it's very very clever. Um, and you see it. the 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 challenge with that is then back to the the Bentos point about creating cliques. The challenge with that is managing that. The once you've got those small teams established. Um, and I think again, you see they're doing that really well. There's a real mix of those those kind of uh, forwards, backs, um, sort of sitting, chatting away, making sure that everybody's kind of integrated. It it was it was a it was a lesson in people management. Yeah, and the, yeah, just... the, other, the other great bit about it though, Cami, is they had time. You know, mm. they they had they had 13 games. They they were in South Africa for such a long time that those messages are, you know, because they're being continually reinforced, it, it did become ingrained. It became a learned behaviour. They weren't still making things up when they reached the test team. They were absolutely set on how they were going to play, the, the personalities that they needed and wanted. You know, the, the boys that they brought in for injuries were were considered and were adding to what was there. The, they had time beforehand to prepare. There was nobody playing in France that had to fly in and be given two weeks off before they got into training. You know, 
if you missed the training session, I'm pretty sure Jim Telfer was in Dave McLean and, and Dr. Robson's ear saying, right, when are they back? What can they do? Not not we need to rest them. Well, can they hold a bag? Can they, you know, can they sit on the scrummage machine? So they were together and it was a small group. It wasn't the 50 plus players. So these things are easier to establish when you're given time and there's not as many personalities to get to know. Yeah. I mean, James Robson's a really interesting one because, again, players have said it so much about how much he's the heart of the team. You know, that, that he he's not there in a... He's not there as a coach. He's not there to dictate what they do or, or, or give messages. He is such a father figure to yeah. a lot of them. And that really comes across really strongly. I mean, there's a lot of times when he jokes. I think I mean, he makes about four or five jokes about the fact that Jim Telfer's constantly in his ear. <laughs> he said, Bruce, about, about who's available and when they're going to be back. But it, it, he's funny, John. I, and He is. Yeah, he comes across really well in this. Yeah, it does. It does. He's, he's, um, the level of emotional intelligence that he displays is unparalleled. And yeah, you can see why he is He is just, he is, he's, he's the heartbeat of it all. And actually, it's interesting because the documentary in a lot of ways focuses on him. Because I think a lot, he has that link between the, the content on the park and the backroom. Um, and you just, yeah, he's just such a nice guy. <laughs> just comes across. Oh, I mean, can we give him another title now? Are we allowed to well, do that? Well, we've already called him Sir Dr. James Robson on this podcast, but um, I don't know if we can add Lord to that. But Lord Sir Dr. James Robson. He's, he, he cares. So, you know, I think at one point he says, does he say they're like his sons that he never had? Mm. I think it, James he's only got daughters, but when Will Green, I mean Will Greenwood nearly dies on that tour, yeah. Um, and he, you know, his mum's there, and you know, how do you deal with that situation? Well, you deal with it like James Robson did, absolutely beautifully. And then the, he gets a bit annoyed at the South African doctor who tells Rob Howley, "Your tour's over." And I think James Robson says something like. There are things we can do because yeah. it's too early to tell. The injury has just happened, and Rob Howley's heart sank. He says, "You know, I've got to know Rob very well, and you know, he has real emotional connection with Rob Howley. So, for this South African to come in as brash as you like and just say, yeah, your tour's over,' James Robson doesn't. Well, he probably didn't want a stranger to deliver that message. James Robson's the kind of guy who will take it on himself to deliver those." hard messages because he loves them so much that he's willing to be the one to give them that mm. and that tour, you know that tour brought him into the conscious of everyone in British rugby I think the players in MD who'd worked with him before loved him but now he's probably one of the most recognisable faces who is not a player or a coach you know I, I, would, I would give him the gold medal over Nigel Owens every time yeah. It's really interesting isn't it to see um, the conversation quite early on, I think when they're discussing, um, I think it's Tom, Tom, Tom Smith are discussing, um, discussing the, the kind of the spinal injury, um, and it's interesting. The, the, I think it's it's uh, Fran Cotton who's saying, you know, this is a tour we can't we can't afford to carry any passengers. I think that's the phrase he used. Now, if, if I'm saying that wrong, I apologise. But the the implication is that. 
we are interested in people's well-being because we can't carry passengers within the tour, which is, you know, within a professional sports environment is a reasonable statement to make. However, you can tell with James Robson that it's it's so much more than that. He's not just concerned about the fact that a guy injured might not be able to go and play. He's concerned about the aftermath. What comes next? You know, you hear him talking to uh, to Underwood and they're talking, talking about, uh, oh, you'll last the tour. He's joking with them. And he says, but what comes next? I'm not sure. And he's kind of, he's making light of the situation, but you can tell there's a genuine concern there for the, these players and their well-being. And that is different to everyone else. Yeah, I think the one, the one thing that stuck out for me is the point, I think he's in a meeting with, with Geach and, and Telfer and he says, we need them to be honest with us. You know, and that's, that's something that's still an issue within rugby, getting players to be honest about the status of their injuries and how they're feeling because it's only going to make things worse. If someone's concealing an injury, it doesn't do the team or them any good. Yeah, it's that same. It's the same speech actually, Cammy. You're absolutely right, and the implication is that they're not being honest because they're scared of, you know, scared of being sent home, scared of getting dropped off the tour. And he's saying, no, you need to be honest because what can happen is so so much worse than having to go home from from a rugby tour. I mean, it's probably worth. This is a good point to to pick up on Doddy actually, and the way that the very calm and simple way that that James Robson gives him the news that his tour's over at the end of the match, like you were saying, Bruce, it's not the South African doctor brutally saying it's just very gentle. This is what's wrong. And Doddy asks the question, is that it? And he says, I you know, and it's just really kind of simple and very sympathetically put and straight to the point. There's no messing around. And it's a really, it's a, it's a very kind of moving emotional moment because Doddy doesn't really react at the time. He kind of says, well, that's that. But there's this kind of stillness in the camera lingers. But there's there's so many moments in that DVD that are absolute joy. Uh, there's the hairs on the back of the neck and then there's the emotional bits where, you know, personally, still watching Doddy's bit breaks my heart because he looked like he was going to be next to Martin Johnson mm-hmm. for the test. And for that to be taken away and I don't know how much Doddy felt if he had another tour in him or if that was just going to be it but I think at the time it's the only thing you can think about and to be given such a huge piece of news you're right it was it was delivered in such a not a matter of fact way but such a low key let's not make this a bigger deal than it needs to be at this moment and for you know, Doddy then has to hand over the camcorder to whoever it is next because he's he's having to leave and he shows his room packed up and his teammate who's staying on tour, you know, is still a shambles. You know, it's heartbreaking for all Scottish rugby watchers because Doddy, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think he's the bronze medal of the person in world rugby that everybody loves. You've got Bill McLaren with the gold medal. You've got Joan Alomu with silver, and you've got Doddy Weir with bronze. Because everybody else, there's somebody who has an issue with them, whereas Doddy absolutely didn't. And he, the the scene from Weybridge where they're trying to do, you know, who does media training as a whole group? That just shows how <laughs> token gesture it was at the time. But you know, Doddy, you were seen stumbling out a nightclub, and, and 
the, the, talking about the pause, the little pause as everybody turned to look at him and then deliver that line with true Doddy understatement. Yeah, my father's also on tour and the whole place just, I mean, nobody knows what the next bit is because you're laughing still at Doddy coming out with that line. It's absolutely priceless. And everybody on that tour loved him. And so many guys on that tour have done things for Doddy in the last two or three years because they loved him. And that game against, I mean, every Scottish rugby supporter in the last 25 years has heard of Umpumalanga. <laughs> you know, no, nobody else had heard of it before. And you could probably ask Scottish rugby supporters, what games do you remember from that 97 Lions tour? And there'll be, the first test and the Mpumalanga game. I mean, it absolutely put that place and that player on the map. But unfortunately, it was for a negative and, and Doddy was the woman who suffered. But, you know, Doddy, Doddy was a lion and he was a lion on absolute playing merit. And people often forget quite how good a rugby player Doddy was. I know. He was such a mobile lock for the time as well. And I think like it's interesting because he's he's front and centre of that documentary up until the point he goes. And there's not many, that's the interesting thing about this. There's only about six people, you know, outside of the coaching group. There's probably about six players that feature prominently throughout. And the rest are there in the background. I mean, even Gregor Townsend is kind of, fairly, as much as he was the kind of pivotal 10 for the test matches, he, he's fairly peripheral in the documentary. No, absolutely. And there's a bit where him and Nick Beale are sitting together. Um, and I think Ben Toss kind of winds them up. He does a little bit of a voiceover of the two of them uh, when they're looking at a magazine or a programme or something. And then there's a couple of changing room shots where Gregor shouts something into the noise of the changing room. And other than that, you're right, he's he's just one of the tourists, you know, guys like Eric Miller. I mean, Eric Miller was a fantastic rugby player. But not one of the ones that anybody will probably remember being on that tour. Um, and then you've got guys like Yian Evans, who was an absolute legend, but even he's not massively in the documentary. And it, it really, it turns into the Bentos show eventually, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, what, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this then, um, the two of you. What, what, John, I'll start with you. What, what's been, what was your big takeaway from, from that documentary? Oh, that's, uh, that's a tough one. Um, was it the, was it the Greg was it the Gregor Townsend Finn Russell are basically uh, the same <laughs> the same player? Because I've got I've got I've got music for that if you want me to play it. Do you want me to cue it up? So, uh, you should cue it up. I'll, yeah, up. I'll, I'll, I'll give I you an intro have... to this. You ready? <laughs> Yeah, um, there yeah, is a lot yeah. that is very cat. The, the, the Gregor Townsend bits are very cats in the cradle, especially there's a point, I think, in the second test where I counted. I think um, Jim Telfer shouts, oh, for F's sake, Gregor, on about six separate occasions during the game. <laughs> and he's intercepted so many times. And it's just, yeah, you look at it going, you could just put Finn Russell into that shirt and it's the same player. Change the hairdo very slightly, and you're you're on it. Um, yeah, um, Gregor Townsend, what, <laughs> um, an interesting um, player um, in this tour, that's for sure. Um, and you can see that that um, 
Finn-esque <laughs> style. Um, the, the thing, actually, for me, what, what really, really uh, I was surprised about, and again, we've we've obviously covered older games uh, on on this podcast before, Cam, me and you sat and done the joy of the, uh, the 95 World Cup um, game against England together. And what surprised me most was the speed of the ball that the Lions were generating. Um, Bruce, you said earlier on that pack was a pack to die for. By God, they got the ball moving quickly for those backs. Um, and almost like the tries that the Lions scored, they didn't actually have to work terribly hard to score them. It was more just numbers because the sheer speed of ball they were generating. And I, in, in an era where rocking was... Uh, even more of a mess than it is now. Well, can I say that? Probably not. Um, but it was unreal how quickly they were moving the ball. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's fair. I think it. It surprised me. I think because we did that ninety-one semi-final, John, and also me and Rory this year did the nineteen ninety Grand Slam game. That yeah. actually in ninety-seven, it's it, it's it's not far off where we are now. Things are maybe a little bit more broken in defence. The defense was the thing that I was going to say. That defensively, the you know you can see the difference of um, dedicated defense coaches. Mm. And the defense does it sits back a lot, doesn't it? You know that you've not got that rush defense there, so there's a bit yeah. more space to run. But I don't know the, the 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 basic structures are there. I think you can start. It's more. Rec- I think that that game, the games there were more recognizable than the games from 1990 and 91. Apart from your number two doing chip and chase and kick oh, throughs yeah. and punt ball clear. Well, let's not forget John Welsh. Come on. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> but, uh, but no, the kicking, the kicking was the other thing I, would, I wanted to mention. Both teams, particularly in the tests, you see the the difference in the style of kicking. Teams kick now, obviously for territory, and to be able to compete for the ball. The teams uh, in '97, it looked like both teams were just kicking the ball to make the man in front of them jump so they could smash him. Which <laughs> I guess sounds fun, but it didn't seem to serve much purpose. Yeah, um, Bruce, what what was your kind of big takeaway from watching it again? Well, for me, the there's two things. One, it's still a massive desire to go on tour. And, and it breaks my heart that tours are becoming so, so difficult. Um, mm. or, or the flip of that is they're so commercial. You know, the the Lions to go on tour there, I remember Alan Tate telling a story about the they'd won a game, they all went back to the hotel and got changed out of their Lions gear into their civvies, arrived at the bar, and there was a whole of supporters who were masquerading as Lions because they had kit on, and nobody <laughs> believed Nobody believed the Lions that they were the Lions because they weren't wearing any Lions kit. You know, <laughs> to be to be almost unknown must have also been a bit of a joy, and not to have the media circus that follows you and the you know the tour groups with Gareth Chilcott all wearing the same you know jacket or fleece or whatever it is, and you know having that commercial edge to it, just being on tour with mates with people you probably hated and then found out they're actually okay 
um, you know, guys he knocked lumps out of in respect to his players and then got to know his people. And they still had a fair bit to talk about in those days because they weren't updating their Twitter or their Instagram. They weren't writing columns for newspapers and getting themselves in trouble. They were just on tour and it was still, it was professional, but it still had so many of the amateur ethos principles to it that that we all love and and touring is one of those things that I greatly miss and if if clubs still do it I always admire them you know there's the 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 two yearly trip down to Wales but that's taken on a completely different it's more of a stag do than a rugby tour uh, this this was a rugby tour that had a lot of fun and games attached to it. So there's still for me that absolute love of touring, and it's something that not many other sports have. And and I I miss it, and I would love to go on a Lions tour, but I know that I, what I would probably be yearning for is the '97 <laughs> Lions tour to South Africa, and that's not going to happen. No. And then the second bit is having such a Scottish involvement, coaches. Mm doctor and players and you know I remember when Tony Stanger got called in I was I was so happy because he was my hero from 1990 he was he worked in the Bank of Scotland in Gala you know I would go and take money out from Tony Stanger uh, he, he was still within reach and these players were players that I had seen playing club rugby and you know, Jim Telfer and Ian McGeekin were, were heroes. So to have people, Scottish people involved in it just meant so much. Now I still love the Lions and, and I am not a I'm not a Gatlin hater by any stretch, but there is a different involvement when you have got players to shout on. And to have Gregor who's you know, a Gala Academy boy and a Gala rugby boy and, uh, you know, played with my older brother. To have somebody that I actually knew, it was like, he's a, he's a British lion. Like, mm. that is that that is the pinnacle. And I remember Jim Rennick telling me a story about his views on the professional game and, and he said he missed the districts because the districts meant that Roy Laidlaw could still play for Jed because the South was what gave Roy Laidlaw the shop window to play for Scotland. In 97, those Scotland players were playing in a Scotland team that still gave them a shop window to be British Lions. My concern more over the last few years is Scotland, at the crucial time, hasn't given Scottish players the shop window to become British Lions. I've got no doubt that some of our individuals are as good as English, Irish and Welsh, but are they in a team that has given them the opportunity to be selected that's a that's a bigger concern for me than Warren Gatlin not picking Scotsman. But that tour of 97 just had it all for me. And at an age where I was about to go into senior rugby, it was just an absolute dream of tour. And then to bring out the DVD, that was the best Christmas present you could possibly get. Yeah. What was it? Was it, it was, uh, no, I knew this at the time, because I, I think two years later I started working in WH Smith's and there was a competition. It wasn't. It was DVD or um, there was two. It was DVD, and then there was a Sony brought out a rival to the DVD at the same time. The laser disc. Laser disc. No, it was. But this is post laser disc. Was this post laser? This was post laser disc. It was DVD, and there was another. It was a bit like the Betamax and video thing. 
and you had to have the right player and you we, we sold both it was like dvd and video plus or something like that there were like a rival formats that you could buy see my my first one was a video cassette my first copy was a was a video and i had to, when that became defunct i had to buy a dvd and, it, I, and, I, and I refused to buy it on Amazon. I tried to, I thought I, I searched for it. It's going to cost me, I think, three ninety nine. I said, I'm not doing that. I've got the DVD already. <laughs> <laughs> this co- see, I bought it on Amazon. I had the option to either rent it on Amazon or buy it, and I've bought it just so I can watch. But, and I'm pleased I did because I'll definitely watch it again. Yeah. I think the I think the interesting thing you raised, Bruce, there is about the the lack of internet, and I think the lack of connectivity, and that was what was really interesting to me. Like Fran Cotton. Who the other thing I learned was that Cotton Traders is named after Fran Cotton and not the fact that yeah. it's made from cotton. Because I always thought, yeah. oh, that's just, it's just because it's made from cotton. Um, yeah. It's the you know he's reading out faxes and he's talking about how the two has been received at home, and you can dig up there are websites from 1997 talking about this tour because it must be the infancy of. I think the Telegraph were probably one of the paper, first papers in the UK to go online, so it's in its infancy the internet at this stage. But players haven't got twitter they haven't got instagram and facebook they haven't they're not constantly checking 24-hour news to find out how it's being reported back home all they'd have access to would be the south african papers if they wanted the british papers it'd be a bit like you know when you go used to go abroad to france and you'd get a paper from a week you know the week previous if you were lucky in the campsite so you'd be about a week behind the british news by the time you got home at this point and it's um it's kind of it, it, that was what was really interesting to me this kind of that this was a point in time it was almost it's on that cusp isn't it one between professionalism and amateurism but also between kind of mass media that's yeah, it yeah you, you can be somewhere and be completely isolated Tim Rodberg gets fined in one of the court sessions because he was seen on his phone as the team was running out that's right yeah and the fine is you have to give your cell phone on the call of good girl you have to give your cell phone to the person stood next to you for them to use. Now, for starters, if that happened now, you wouldn't be able to access it because you wouldn't know their code and you don't have their fingerprint, and it would cost them nothing anyway. So it's you know that's not a fine anymore. Can you imagine the cost of a call on a cell phone from South Africa back to the UK in 1997? Yeah. It would have been astronomical, but there would also have been people that he would have handed it to and probably wouldn't have had MD to call. <laughs> you know, because the, the only number you knew was your home number, but you weren't there. Yeah, so that's it. who was your phone? 1997, I think I had friends with pages, but other than that, but I had I had to have I didn't have a pager, so I had to find a, if I wanted to know where they were, I had to find a phone box and have to spare change in my pocket to phone their pager. And they had no way of responding to me. I'd just have to tell them where I would be and hope to turn up. <laughs> Beric's yeah. know that, Mick. Did you know just put up smoke signals? It was Woolly, Smith, Woolly Steps. That was always a, I'll meet you on Woolly Steps. <laughs> I, I, I miss all those kind of, like, you would always have your meeting points and you would... It's amazing we got anything organised back in the 90s before we had, like, WhatsApp groups to organise WhatsApp groups. Yeah, if we just turn up in the same pub every night and somebody would turn up that you knew, that was a joy. Yeah. You'd just go and stand at the bar and eventually someone would come and talk to you that you knew. Or <laughs> again, being in a small town, you would uh, you would, you would would be able to relay a message because someone would know someone who would have contact with the other person that you wanted to meet up with. 
my favourite ever story was my brother's. My brother lives in Australia now, but when he first went out there, when he was a uh, this was after university, he he was in a a nightclub in Sydney, and he met a girl in this nightclub, and she said, "Where are you from?" He says, "I'm from Berwick," and she said, "That's funny. I used to live there." And it turned out she lived on. She used to live on the street behind where we lived, in a house, and we knew the family that moved in after her. So that that was fairly weird. What was even weirder was the fact that then my mother found out he'd met this girl before he told her because she told her mum, who told a neighbour, who then told my mother. <laughs> Absolutely magnificent. And the segue is that that was Kieran Bracken's cousin and that gets us back to the 97 Lions team. There we go, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, was there anything, anything else either of you wanted to raise about the 97 Lions tour before we we, we we bid everyone farewell? How much Jeremy Davidson looks like Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, I think, well, that was not just that, but also how many, um, the hairlines on this, so many of that squad and, and not just the squad, but also the uh, staff like James Robson for one, have lost a significant amount of hair since that tour. I've lost all my hair since that too. <laughs> That's different, Bruce. You were younger than these guys. I mean, is it, I was, <laughs> look at Lawrence. Del- some of the players you're looking at going, is that Lawrence Delalio with hair? And how how big were the playing shirts in South Africa? I know. Bring back big badges. I think we should bring back big badges. I really enjoyed the big, like oversized badges on shirts and tracksuits. And it looked like boys had to cut their own sleeves as well. That's always enjoy. I always kind of enjoy that that you, when you look back at these old things and people are customising their, their shirts. I'm pretty sure Hovis Brown at, at Gala, young Hovis, young Gareth. I'm sure he used to cut the sleeves off whenever he got the chance, and that always upset the other back rows <laughs> that were going to wear it after him. <laughs> but you never, you didn't know what to wear anything Hovis had worn anyway, whether it had sleeves or not. <laughs> <laughs> as, as, I suppose that's one way of making the shirt your own. Um, just maybe not, not, not quite what we're looking for. <laughs> how, how good, how good was Tom Smith on that tour? Oh, unbelievable! I think that's... And, and one of the quietest men on the planet. But uh, just uh, that, like that was another one of those sort of proper takeaways from it. Tom Smith was one of the players of the tour doing all the stuff that doesn't get seen, you know, that old chestnut. But Tom Smith, and that that came from the absolute faith that you were talking about, um, Ryan Grant not getting put on because he wasn't trusted. Tom Smith had the absolute trust of Jim and Geach that he was going to do what he needed to do against Osteran. That's what, that, that, there was one quote in the selector, it's the first selectors meeting, and it's something Jim Telfer says that really struck me. Because I don't think any, again, coming back to I don't think any Lions tour has done this since or would, I don't think they, they, they dare do it, which is Jim Telfer says, I'd hate for us to go with experience and not give it a good go. Yeah. And I think that's what they do in this. You know, they 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 go, what's our best team? Not not who's got the experience, who's going to do us a job. What What's our best team here? And I know reading about the tour that they purposely went out and chose players that were good decision makers. So a lot of these players were out of favour with England at the time. You know, these aren't even guys that were getting caps for England. I don't think Daw- Matt Dawson was necessarily anywhere near the England team at the time, and there's a couple of others. Like you were saying, Bruce, the guys that come back from league. It's it was just, you know, who are the who are the players that we know can fit what we want to do, not who are the best players for their country right now. 
And I'm not sure you would ever... I don't think that will ever happen again. But the, the squad reflected, you know, the the beautiful thing as a coach is if people can look at the team and they know that it's yours, mm. you know, you, you create it in your own image. And that squad, like you say, Jim and, and Geach weren't they bothered what anybody thought. They were picking the team and the squad and the personalities that had the tools for the way they were going to approach their performances. And, you know, they they came up with a plan that they thought was going to work. Could they predict the results? Absolutely no way. But putting Neil Jenkins at fullback for a Lions test is absolute madness. There's not... <laughs> There's not a Welshman worth his salt who depicts Neil Jenkins at fullback. Not a chance. But that was the role that he was there to play. And Geach and, and Jim went for it and he kicked the leather off it and South Africa allowed him to. Yeah. You know, in South was, Africa, they had to bring in Percy Montgomery. You know, Percy Montgomery got his first cap against the Lions. That's right. That's, that's, right. A, that's a big deal. And he went on, I think, is he not still Springbok's top point scorer River? Mm-hmm. You know they, yeah, we'll they, be, yeah. they needed somebody to come in and kick goals because the Lions had Neil Jenkins and there's always I mean in that time you've already spoken about the ruck and I'm so glad you didn't get me involved there or that could have turned into a whole other podcast about the <laughs> but you know the, there was always going to be penalties in those games there was always going to come down to the difference of three points and, and that was exactly what happened that's a brilliant that's a great Geach quote half time in the second test the referee's a Frenchman, there will be penalties. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually, you mentioned Neil Jenkins. That was going to be, uh, I've got two points to make, but one of them was going to be, for me, Neil Jenkins, like, I, I loved watching him when I was younger as a as a player. Not because not because he was particularly flashy or anything, just because he could kick the leather off it. Um and he was he was brilliant. He was so good. And he set the blueprint for how Lions, the Lions can win tests. And it's basically just pick a Welshman at 15 who can kick goals. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, so I, I guess next year, um, I don't know, do we have any Welsh fullback? Oh, yeah, Halfpenny's still kicking about, isn't he? So expect Halfpenny to start the tests next year. Or stick a ginger fly half at fullback, so we can put uh, what's his name. He he can go to fullback. Patchell, put him at fullback. Well, he plays fullback as well, so yeah, he could. That's a great shout, actually. Or maybe maybe Fenton could dye his hair to get in the team. Yeah, I think there's that lovely moment, isn't there, between where where Neil Jen- Jenkins can't do a piss. <laughs> At the end of the That's second such test, a shame. and it's just him and James Robinson sat alone in the changing room because there's a drugs test, and they have to sit there until he can do until he needs a piss, and then they can leave. And of all the boys in that touring group, who are you 100 percent confident has not taken any performance enhancing drugs? <laughs> on, on the on the flip side of that, the only player who, to me, looks like, and I'm going to use the term a professional very loosely, but how big was Simon Shaw back Oof. then? Holy moly. The, the gun show was real with this guy. But that's that's one of my favourite scenes, although I do take exception at Keith Wood calling Shawzy Bruce 
but when he comes in for the court <laughs> session and he swaggers down and then he has to say, Bruce, 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 and he's not paying attention, he goes, Shawzy. That is one of my favourite, favourite moments. And then when Neil Jenkins comes in with the, the cork on the end of the fork and the eye patch, Ruprecht, that is absolute gold. Yeah. Absolute gold. I think, um, I think Neil Jenkins' haircut's almost back in fashion now if you're a hipster. <laughs> is that going ever went out of fashion in Glasgow? <laughs> Oh, I think that's as good a note as any to leave it. As good a note as any to round up is a Neil Jenkins haircut. You'll note that was a Glasgow dig and not an Edinburgh dig. I think. Well I'm done, John. That's admirable. I'm going to put that down for personal growth. That's good. In, <laughs> that's good in your annual appraisal. That's, a, that's my PDP getting a wee bit of, a wee bit of text. Your annual podcast yes. appraisal, John. John had a dig at Glasgow instead of Edinburgh one week. <laughs> good progress. Well, Bruce, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you very much for having me. An absolute joy. Good. And John, thank you again for coming on, as always. No, pleasure as always, guys. Um, just to let everybody know, um, next week we are going to do the next in our podcast, Lockdown Book Club, and we're looking at Behind the Thistle. But we're specifically looking at, it as a way of looking at reviewing the Frank Haddon Andy Robinson, Scott Johnson years in Scottish rugby, just to see whether things were as bad as they really were. Because uh, that book has got a lot of interviews with players. Uh, that'll be worth taking a look at that. Um, I've also uh, recorded an episode of Squidge Rugby's uh, Rugby Retrospective podcast where he forced me, I say forced, I did volunteer for it, but he did. I also believe he forced me to watch Scotland versus Georgia from the 2011 World Cup. Um, so watch out for that coming. That did spark the uh, kind of rev- the idea of, of, of reviewing the Haddon Robinson Johnson era. So um, if you want to subject yourself to that, uh, we'll be back next week with that. But for the moment, it is a goodbye from me and goodbye from Bruce and John. Cheers, folks. Thank you very much.
his head and he said with a smile What I'm feeling like, Dad, is to bother jockeys See you later, can I have them, please? And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon Little boy blue and the man on the moon When you're coming home, son, I don't know where We'll get together there You know I'll have a good time there Just like me.